Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I am your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're going to be talking about diversified private equity strategy, something very unique, a very unique strategy uh, brought to you by Kelly Ann Winget, who is here with me today on the show. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I'm excited to talk about everything. Yeah, and we had just a, a little mini conversation before we hit the record button, and um you know, Kelly, you were telling me about your background and how you got in to the private equity space. And I really think that's a big part of what makes your fund interesting. So why don't we just begin there? Could you tell us, you know, how you got into this world of private equity? Sure. So um, it kind of started from the beginning of time. I'm five generations in oil and gas. So I've always been exposed to at least um, that industry. But both my parents were in financial services. Um, my father worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for 30 years. My mother has been an accountant for several different privately owned companies, including two different oil companies. So it was just a space that I was uh, involved in, or at least had knowledge of my entire upbringing. But eventually I found my own way into oil and gas, which was kind of my intro into the private investment space um, in that industry. Through that experience, I eventually um, went into kind of the investor relations role for um, different companies raising capital over the last several years. Uh, a few years ago, I worked with a family office um, that branched into a private equity company. Um, they were trying to raise capital from retail investors, individual investors. And so I kind of bridged the gap between um, an individual high net worth uh investors terminology and understanding to uh, the institutional space um, just to make sure that investors were understanding what they were investing in. But there was a lot of lack of transparency in that world that I just didn't like. And so with that combined experience, I decided to launch Alternative Wealth Partners and start working on a diversified fund for the individual investor. Okay. Now you, you don't need to say anything more than you're comfortable with. But I, I, from someone operating on the inside and interacting with institutional investors or family offices versus your everyday retail accredited investor, mm -hmm. I'm curious your take on like the relative sophistication is the wrong word, but almost like street smarts or investment skill of a retail investor versus an institutional investor. Because on the one hand, you know, when I speak with institutional investors, they're they're more sophisticated. They have more time and bandwidth, mm -hmm. um, you know, to to research different investment segments. But on the other hand, if I feel like a lot of times when it comes to investment selection, they still end up flipping a coin or placing, you know, placing the investment with um, with the woman they had a, a beer with or the guy they had a beer with at the last conference or whatever. <laughs> so it's not really any different at the end of the day. What's yeah. your take, though? Do you, do you think the institutional invest, like in that kind of scenario where, um, you know, like a family office or private equity firm starts to accept retail investors, do you feel like you're mm -hmm. dealing with a less sophisticated investor or is it just, are they just different? No, they, they just have different goals. So their investment, like the reasons why they're making the investment are very different. 
And I think it's hard for somebody who is already worth dollars um, to communicate with somebody who isn't worth a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, Literally a billion or. Yeah. Yeah. Like their risk tolerances are very different, right? Um, yeah. You can be worth uh, a few million dollars, but still be worried about, you know, if this investment goes bad, it could drastically affect my retirement or my family's well-being. Mm-hmm. And a billionaire can make a million dollar investment and it literally would change nothing about their lifestyle. Um, and it's that disconnect that happens kind of in the family office, private equity space, because they deal with a lot of really big numbers. Yeah. And, and the people that I like to work with are, um, you know, typically small business owners or like retired pilots. Um, you know, even a plumber makes three, $400,000 a year if they own their company. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with people that in, in money terms, make a lot of money, but in their world, is not a lot of money. So right. under understanding that is really important. And I think that when you are so involved in the finance space, you can't disconnect from that. Like you understand it because you spend all day looking at numbers. You're, you're doing the analysis, you're looking at the deals um, and it makes sense to you. But somebody who has a day-to-day job, like a pilot, they know planes um, or a doctor who knows bones, like they don't know anything else. And you have to be able to communicate with those people in a way that they understand um, because they deserve to know the information too. And I think that's kind of the biggest disconnect. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I was um, talking with a guest last week on the show. We were talking about the definitions of very high net worth and ultra high net worth. And I remembered reading ultra high net worth I believe it was 25 or 50 million and very high, high net worth was either like five or 10 million. Mm-hmm. I'm like those textbook terms and those definitions probably from 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, e- even the inflation of the last year alone. Um, and then, you know, talking about an accredited investor, for instance, mm-hmm. um, you know, those definitions, I, I don't believe they're adjusted for inflation or at least they haven't been for quite some time. So it's interesting in this private equity world, when you talk about different amounts of investable wealth, how much it changes the picture, right? Because if, if you kind of alluded to, if you're a billionaire, why would you bother making an investment of a million dollars, right? Unless it's a hundred X return, it's right. like, why I don't want to deal with the complexity or the mental overhead of even thinking about this. If it's such a small percent of my net worth, um, so, you know, how, how, how do you handle then running a private equity fund, sort of that initial screen of, okay, I know you're an accredited investor, like obviously legally you have to verify that, but are there other, you know, goal, goal-oriented questions that you ask a prospective investor to, to even, you know, see if, if your fund or really any alternative investment is a good fit for their goals? Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of it has to do with making sure that they understand how a private equity fund works uh, compared to maybe some of the other products that they um, have exposure to. Typically, they're like fixed income or annuities or insurance, something like that, right? Um, Which they still probably don't understand. But uh, (laughs) it's really it's really about explaining that we are taking risks by funding these businesses. Mm -hmm. And so the returns are variable and unpredictable. Um, And as long as they can kind of understand that and don't have expectations of uh, returns, then, you know, then we go into, this is, 
the strategy and how we plan on making money. And this is what we intend to make from these investments. Um, but it's always kind of a twofold conversation. I make sure that they understand that there's a lot of risk, but if you can accept that, then this is how we're moving forward. Um, because it is, it's definitely riskier than some of the stuff that they have access to from a traditional investing stance. So would you say your fund, it's not only intended to provide portfolio diversification, but it's also just for alpha to, to mm -hmm. potentially juice overall returns. Okay. So why don't we, going back a little bit to um, your experience with the family office and the private equity industry doing bigger deals, what kind of projects or deals or in investment segments uh, were you researching? Were you working with? And and which which ones of those are you now involved with with your own fund? Um, that company in particular was uh, real estate, oil and gas, and tech. Mm -hmm. um, when I was onboarded, technology was I think their kind of newest branch. Um, a majority of the management team had most of their experience in real estate. Um, it's where they made a majority of their wealth in the beginning, and then. Um, I, from my opinion, they got really lucky in 2016 after uh, oil corrected in 2015 and bought a really good property um, and then kind of took that experience or lack of experience to buy new um, oil and gas um, assets and then kind of went from there. But uh, they brought me in because no one else on the team had had any experience in oil and gas or at least talking to investors about oil and gas. And because I have, you know, multi-generational experience and my family owns different types of oil and gas assets. Um, that's why I was initially invited in. Um, it was a very short um, uh, relationship, but uh, that was what they were in. They were in those three sectors. And we do that in our d diversified fund as well. Um, right now, we're heavy in oil and gas just because the when we bought these assets, when we launched our fund, gas was at $1.60. And oil was at sixty dollars, so fifty well fifty five on some of them. So now we're you know almost nine dollar gas and a hundred dollar oil. So um, this is just a space that I know a lot of information about and watch very closely. So we're aggressive in that area, but we do have. Oh, so I'm sorry to interrupt. What kind of oil and gas deals are they? Are they uh, you know buying real estate, buying contracts? I mean. It, Talk to me, explain like I'm five years old, which piece of the oil and gas industry are you specifically working with? So um, there's kind of multiple ways that you can get involved in oil and gas. There's the real estate side where you own the land uh, and then you lease that land to oil companies or you own the mineral rights, which are all, you know, everything below the ground as far as real estate's concerned. And you get paid a royalty when oil companies come and develop that mineral. Um, and then you have your working interest. So your working interest is where you're actually participating in the development of the well. Um, right now, we have a little bit of non-op, which means we are not the operator on the project, uh, but we do own the working interest. So we are exposed to drilling costs, but we aren't the ones who are actually doing the drilling. And then we have some that where we are partnered with the owner or the operator. And so that working interest, we do it's considered operational, even though, you know, us as, a, as alternative wealth partners isn't the operator, we behave like the operator because we are partnered with the operator. Um, and that's kind of the two ways that we participate. We haven't had an opportunity necessarily to buy minerals just because of the way I have this fund structured and the return expectations I need from the assets. Minerals 
um, haven't been able to meet those. Uh, so where you stick to working interests for the most part, that's where your highest return is in oil and gas. So my radar just picked up. So you mentioned return expectations. So it's, it sounds like you're purposefully looking for higher return, obviously higher risk coming, you know, type projects. And I know in the, in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you have a smaller private equity fund, right? It's not family office size yet. Right. Right. Um, not, not competing with Blackstone yet. So is that something that can enhance returns, basically getting involved in these smaller projects? I mean, are they essentially good projects that might go below the radar of a family office? Or is it like the opposite where, because they're smaller, there's actually more competition from, I hate to say amateurs, but, um, you know, smaller investors, you know, does it, does it matter? Um, oil and gas is kind of a funny industry. It's, it's, it's very small, especially here in Texas. Um, like everybody kind of knows what everybody's doing, but, um, you know, small owner operators, uh, small producers in the United States provide like 30% of our production. So there's just a lot of us and typically it's self-funded. That's kind of really the, um, the barrier between a, a normal person getting access to oil and gas um, and not is that most of it is just self-funded. These are families that have been drilling for generations mm-hmm. and they're just developing their own properties um, or surrounding properties that they've already worked on. Um, there's There was a big influx of competition in 2013 and 14 when oil went to $130 a barrel last time. We had a bunch of people just randomly jumping in and like over syndicating deals. Um, and that's when you had investors probably lose a lot of money. When you have, when you talk to retail investors, they're like, oh, I'll never do oil. I lost so much money in oil, but it's typically not from a dry hole. It's usually because somebody um, marked the deal up too much and they weren't able to deliver on it. So, cause oil corrected went down to $30 a barrel. So um, it's really about making sure that you know when to buy in and, working with people that have either done this on their own dime a lot uh, or have their own money in it now. Um, and I think that's kind of the big difference of family office. Family office isn't going to look at a deal that's under $100 million. Um, and we get to partner with people in the institutional space to take down those bigger deals for our little baby fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a deal that we did out in West Texas that the entire property was a $100 million purchase price. Um, our, our relationships in this space, uh, we worked with this single family office that bought that hundred million dollar property. They wrote the check and then we were able to, uh, fund our 15%. So we bought $15 million of that hundred million, um, a few months later, but they were able to write that whole check up front and then give us our portion when we were ready. Um, that, that was a kind of a unique deal because there was so much production on that property that it was able to lower our out-of-pocket costs by almost half. So instead of us taking out $10 million worth of debt to cover our $15 million, we only had to take out four and a half and wow. bring bring $2 million of equity. So um, you know, those those are the kinds of things that we're able to do just because we have these, you know, special unique relationships. Um and that's really how oil and gas works like you either if you get a phone call from a stranger about oil gas deal they've probably bought the prospect from somebody else and marked it up 40 percent yeah 
And I told you before we got on the recording that I would tell you what the secret was to oil and gas deals. And if you're looking and shopping for like independent oil and gas deals, if they can't do a two-year payout between $55 and $65 oil, they've marked it up too much. So they're they're running a little fat. Um, because right now, the, the way with the technology and oil and gas, the, there should be no reason that somebody's lift cost is high that high. They should have a two-year payout of $65 oil, no problem. There we go. I love a rule of thumb. A simple yeah. heuristic. I love it. Okay, so we've covered oil and gas. So mm -hmm. the, the way I understand your funds, it's a private equity fund, and it's diversified basically into three different segments, broad segments, and uh, roughly targeting one-third in each segment. Maybe a little overweight oil and gas right now just because you know, current events, <laughs> yeah. probably driven yeah. valuations there, but let's talk about those other two segments. Sure. So um, private equity is kind of broken up in a couple different places. So um, in, in our presentation, we talk about, you know, a portion of our, a big portion of our fund is allocated to manufacturing. And that's just because I really like the um, infrastructure space, especially with the big, you know, rebuild America incentives that are going on. So, um, I, I definitely am somebody I consider to be lucky or at least an, someone who takes advantage of opportunities. And a few years ago, I met someone I refer to as the crazy gun guy and I'm in Texas. So I have, you know, lots of crazy gun guys around me, but this one in particular was, um, growing his ammunition manufacturing uh, company. And so uh, I worked with him for a few years just to kind of get him uh, streamlined. And when 2020 hit, um, basically demand exploded and then uh, supply disappeared. Right. Uh, and so it was a huge opportunity for us to like, okay, now you're ready to take on investor capital. And it was one of the, actually the main reasons why I decided to build the diversified fund because um, I could create a foundation asset in the diversified fund with this ammunition manufacturer um, that would just kind of hold the base return for the investors uh, at 15% and uh, then build on top of that to get higher equity returns uh, for these exits that will happen later in the fund, but to protect the cash flow from this debt opportunity with the manufacturing company. And now they've been able to turn that capital into um, their next phase, which is producing primers, which is why we have an ammo shortage. There's only three companies in the United States that make primers. And now this company is the fourth and they have a capacity um, to do about 4 billion primers a year. Uh, and the margins on it are just ridiculous. Right now, primers are going for about four and a half to five and a half cents on the wholesale side. Um, and we're able to kind of take advantage of that uh, with our relationship to, you know, profit. So it's it sounds to me like you're actually comfortable in a variety of spaces in the private equity world, um, given that you have you know, understanding and relationships in those spaces. And you really like having the freedom to be opportunistic, right? If, if the uh, risk reward ratio is there, then, you know, th th it makes sense to do that deal. So as you said, you found that deal that sort of provided the baseline to your fund, and then you have that freedom to opportunistically go into other spaces. Is that, is right. that sort of the gist or are you more? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. So then what's, yeah. what's the third space? So then we've talked about manufacturing. We've talked about oil and gas. Mm-hmm. So what's the third segment that you operate in? So we had, we have um, space to allocate to real estate. We have done a little bit of real estate so far. Um, a majority of our cap. So I launched this fund um, May, June of 2021. It took me about seven months to like figure out the structure and find the assets and negotiate the deals for um, acquisitions as soon as capital came in. So we launched in um, May, June of last year. A majority of the capital came in December, January. So realistically, we've had about six months with deployed capital. Um, and the first part of our um, strategy was to make sure that we had some cash flow coming to the investors mm-hmm. so that we can like patiently wait around for the equity stuff to exit. Um, so we have some real estate that we were able to um close on because again, I have really high hurdles in this fund. So real estate's very competitive right now. And there's just no way that your typical real estate deal is going to return 30, 40% a year. Um, So the properties that we've been able to find have been extremely off market, like convincing people to sell um, or overhearing a converse. One of our product uh, properties we bought in East Texas, um, one of the tenants of the building overheard the owner talk about her divorce and went in and offered her to buy the building and then called me and said, I want to buy this building. So, um, you know, that's kind of the opportunities that we get to take advantage of because the, the return potential there can be uh, much greater than anything else that you would find, you know, syndicated online. Gotcha. So, okay. So we have real estate, we have oil and gas, we have manufacturing and private equity world. Let's talk a little bit then uh, investor facing about the structure of your private equity fund. I know a lot of our listeners and viewers of the show, uh, they're used to investing in private placement offerings in the real estate world, either, you know, single asset funds or or maybe diversified in a particular sector, whether it's multifamily or any other kind of commercial real estate. Uh, I'm guessing like the fee structure, returns, waterfalls, all that is a little bit different with a diversified private equity funds. So could you walk us through how that's structured? Sure. So um, typically you're going to see these funds with a management fee and then some sort of equity split after preferred return. And so because this is the first fund that I'm managing like on my own, um, the investors are taking a lot of risk and trusting me with that. Right. So I wanted to make sure that the investors understand that my interests are aligned with theirs. So I front all of the cost for the fund um, out of the GP split. So the they get 100% of the revenue of the fund until they've seen 10% returns. Uh, once they've hit 10%, we split everything 80-20, and the cost of the fund comes out of that 20% split. So they're not exposed to any of the overhead of the fund. Um, Wait, it's 80-20 to the investor? Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's a more investor-friendly waterfall than you typically see in um, like the multifamily world, for instance. Right. Yes. Okay. Wow. Well, Uh, it it sounds sounds very enticing and it also sounds very um, risky, I guess, in terms of to get those kind of returns, you have to be comfortable with higher volatility assets. I mean, oil and gas, just as an industry, higher risk. Um, but that being said, the, the diversified strategy of being in three different asset classes, 
that are less correlated makes a lot of sense. But sorry, I, I interrupted you there. So there's that there's that hurdle of preferred return that goes 100% to the LPs. And then after that, it's 80-20 to your LPs and you're bearing the cost, the management costs out of your 20%. Yes. And is there a target uh, race? Like, will this fund be open for X amount of time? Do you plan to close it at a certain date? Is, are you trying to raise a certain amount of uh, assets or? Yes. So um, it it's filed for a $50 million fund. We have about 15 million under management right now. Um, because of the way that I've structured the fund, I don't intend to raise the 50 million. Um, and that's just because I'm the assets that I've put in this fund um, were intentional and I just, I don't want to give it all away. So I probably uh, want to raise somewhere between five and 7 million more and then close it. Uh, we have until the end of 2023 to do that, but my intention is to close it before the end of the year. And that's just because we're already in pay status and most of these assets. So um, the investors are already getting dividends. Some investors got their first dividend 30 days after investing. Um, and that's just because obviously oil and gas prices are really high. So you know, when we complete a well, we're making a lot more money than we originally planned because we bought these again at $1.60 gas and $55 oil. So um, so do newer investors, like let's say someone calls you up tomorrow and invests tomorrow, mm-hmm. are they getting the same deal that someone who invested a year ago gets? They they hold for two quarters. So they do not get dividends for two quarters and I then see. they start getting dividends. And that was something we had to implement after the fact just because we had um, $3.5 million come in at the end of the year that diluted everybody's shares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they still all got a return. Um, it was just a difference of the people that came in in June, July who were looking at like a 6 to 8% return. Their first dividend were now getting two. So um, we changed some of the rules for people to hold for six months just so that we could play some catch up on those investors who came in at the beginning to start getting their dividends before everybody does. Um, That's the kind of the whole push of closing before the end of the year, Mm -hmm. because um, 2023 will probably be our highest income year um, just from cash flow, because we have all of the oil and gas projects that we drilled um are being completed like right now in this month and so far we've um haven't had we've had one well that didn't um that was a dry hole but it was inside of a group of wells so it doesn't really matter that it happened um it doesn't affect the overall return um so we'll see all of that revenue start coming in basically the first quarter of next year um because if you haven't worked in oil and gas it works in about a 60 to 90 day delay before you get your first checks. Well, it's a lot faster than, you know, ground up development in the real estate world. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, well, I want it because the thing is I don't get paid until the investors get paid. Yeah. So I'm trying to pump out as much cash flow as possible. So the investors are getting something. So then now I can get my portion, right? Um, as soon as I can get that money back into the hands of the investors, then we start splitting everything. Um, because as much as I love working for free, I don't want to do it forever. Um, so that's kind of the motivation of, about buying those cash flowing assets first and then buying the equity assets, which we have some in the fintech space that are pretty cool. So 
So let's talk about uh, those assets in the fintech space to the, the degree that you can. I don't know where those you know deals stand, where they are in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that like venture capital? Is it debt financing? So we one of the things that we can talk about is um, we invested in the Series B round for Elevest, which is Sally Krawcheck's, um project. Uh, she's launched a basically a robo advisor and private wealth um, firm for women. So the entire algorithms are built around uh, the investor being a woman and what that, uh, what kind of risk profile that is and the different things that happen to women in their lives that affect how they can invest. Um, like we make less money, uh, we work for less amount of time. Um, so these things get factored into how- Live longer. Let's not forget to live longer. Live, yeah, we live longer. So we need more money, but yep. make less money. And so sure. that kind of just goes into their um, investment planning. And so- um, I don't know if you know anything about Sally Krawcheck, but she's, you know, basically a, a shark in the private wealth space, um, uh, CFO of Citibank, uh, basically responsible for Merrill Lynch's private wealth entire portion of their business. Um, but she is a pretty aggressive uh, person. So I, I feel like she's the right person, the head of this. So we're just, we're a, we're a small investor alongside some pretty big people in her um, series B round. And then, um, we have another, um, I'm trying to figure out how I can talk about it. It's a kind of a friends and family. They don't want to raise any, any capital from private equity or venture capitals, uh, groups, Mm -hmm. um, because they've been able to kind of self-fund their, um, software from the beginning. And so, um, one of the team members is friends with one of my investors. And so that's how we were brought into the deal. Um, and so we've been able to kind of negotiate some uh, preferential shares of the business. And so it's more in the um, accounting treasury space mm-hmm. um, and it's a global software. So, you know, government entities can use it. Um, it's very big brothery. But uh, I really understand the value of data, and that's where the value of that company is going to be, is in the data it can collect from its software. Well, in regards to the big brother, I mean, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> might be might be something that I find objectionable on, on, one, on the one hand, but be happy to be an investor in, uh, on the other hand, right? So, and you know, during our conversation, so I, I want to actually rewind you said one really interesting thing in regards to manufacturing mm-hmm. um, because it's been a hunch that I've had, but we could probably ignore that because it's not like I really um, invested in it. So, you know, it's kind of a throwaway hunch, but, but uh, manufacturing in the United States or even manufacturing domestically at all, you know, we've had the war in Ukraine just shown with energy, you know, how important energy policy and energy supply is. But even prior to that, with uh, COVID and the lockdowns, and we saw all these supply chain constraints, you know, we've had this long-term trend of deflation and cheaper costs for everything, right? You go to Walmart, everything is just getting, you know, in the long run, adjusting for purchasing power has become more offshore and less expensive um, given purchasing power. Not everything, a lot of things haven't, but a lot of those sort of everyday products that we buy at a Walmart have that trend has sort of temporarily reversed, Mm -hmm. right? In the last two or three years, do you see that 
as a temporary blip in the radar where we've, you know, the trend has been towards international trade and, you know, disinflation, or do you see that more as we've had a, a more permanent, not permanent, a, a more lasting paradigm mm-hmm. shift to where this is going to be a trend that lasts a couple decades now to where there starts to be some more onshoring and more domestic manufacturing again? I think that um, we're going to see kind of a similar effect as like the World War II, right? Um, all this crazy stuff was happening overseas. And so we started bringing uh, more of that process home. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that we are, we're not at the level of there's going to be a third world war, but there's definitely enough disruption where we're like, mm, maybe we should just do this at home. Um, and we're going to automate a lot of that. So I don't think it's going to be like, oh, let's send the masses back out to the workforce. And, you know, where here we are industrial times again, it's going to be all done with robots, right. And technology. But I think that we're just going to be, um, more careful about what we're giving away, uh, as far as technology goes. Um, we gave a lot of our technology away to China and so they were able to produce it faster and cheaper. And I think we're just going to be more of a hoarder for a while um, because right now we do hold a lot of the power globally in many different ways. And I think we're just going to hold on to that for the time being, especially, really- yeah, especially if the administration changes. So it's, it's a really interesting analogy. I'm, I'm thinking through, you know, the late 1940s, the early 1950s, obviously a lot of domestic manufacturing then I'd have to look up the data. I'm guessing bondholders during that period, just got totally crushed. <laughs> I know war bonds were maybe not the greatest investments. I know the country had a pretty high level of national debt mm-hmm. coming out of the war. Um, but we also had favorable demographics in the late 40s and the 1950s with uh, the baby boom, right? So it's a little different now. We're uh, probably similar, greater levels of debt, but not as favorable of demographics but that's that's probably a different discussion Mm -hmm. uh, more of a policy discussion i want to bring things now turning to our uh investors from Mm -hmm. an investor's viewpoint um a lot of the listeners viewers of our show are used to investing in private equity real estate and i think your fund is very interesting some of the asset classes um that you're working with uh, what are some tips that you would give investors who are maybe they've bought into alternatives, you know, they've invested in private placement offerings, but some of these segments, some of the uh, these asset classes are new ground for them. What are some tips you would give them to sort of navigate the space and, you know, even in talking with sponsors or looking at different offerings, how to evaluate those? So um, the real estate space has gotten really interesting just because, um, I think people are trying to take more control and there's a lot less barriers of entry into real estate. Um, Basically anybody can invest in real estate um, uh, either with your own money or somebody else's money. And uh, there isn't as many regulations as there are. Is that a bad thing? Sorry, just to stop right there. (laughs) Is that a, is that a bit, does that mean lower returns? If, if you know the the barriers of entry are lower, does that just mean that it's, it's too, Um, not necessarily. It's just, uh, I think it's, I think it's riskier when you have a lot of people 
with not necessarily a lot of experience doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are really good uh, managers in the real estate space, um, but there are a lot of people who just read the same book and are now um, <laughs> gurus of financial freedom because of real estate. Sure. And I think I think that's really what the risk is, is make sure you know who you're dealing with and how long they've been doing it. Because if their experience is post 2008, should like we are, they have not experienced loss. <laughs> so, um, you know, you just need to keep that in mind. Uh, you know, what have they been through in the cycles of their investment asset space? Sure. Um, you know, I'm not very old, but I've seen two corrections in oil and gas, you know, um, people who are just slightly older than me have seen like three or four. So, mm-hmm. you know, you want to pay attention to those people who have experienced that, um, people that have been like day traders, for example, who have been enjoying the market for the last 10 years, um, it's just gone up, uh, you know, maybe don't know what's going to happen next. And they can't speak from any type of experience because they haven't experienced loss. Um, That's kind of the, and I have a lot of opinions about the brand new financial advisors coming (laughs) into service over uh, people in that 50 to 60 year old um, age range uh, as financial advisors. So So, you mean, so like RIAs or uh, financial planners, just because they haven't lived through necessarily the market cycles, maybe have a harder time advising clients. I I would just ask them what their opinion is. You know, if they, if they think you just want to make sure that they understand that there's these things that can happen because we're in a totally unprecedented time. You know, you have some things that could never happen. Inflation could never go above 4%. Um, We've permanently kicked inflation. So, yeah. Um, it's just, uh, it's just an interesting thing because, um, you know, for those of you who are only in the, um, private space, uh, the public market is just a, a wild gambling time. And, um, you just have to understand that there's risk in both places. And even though we've been in this like incredible market, um, there's things that are happening that are going to drastically affect that but no one can time anything. So, um, you mean like the bond market could return negative for a decade. The stock market can actually, the publicly traded stocks can return negative over a decade. Um, I had Meb Faber on the show, um, a a while back and, and he has research that just people are totally clueless. I mean, you're talking about going back 20, 30, 40 years, He's talking about going back 150 years and looking at public stock markets. People have no idea, even a 50-50 portfolio or 60-40 portfolio, the kind of volatility that they had in the depression. Um, and, and, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, mm-hmm. maybe may in my lifetime, right? So I, I think your point is very well taken. Um, you know, on the subject of, of timeline, mm-hmm. um, and we've already kind of alluded to, you know, different investors have different time horizons. Um, you know, the, the term of patient capital, you know, that's the institutional capital that can just afford to hold and hold and hold. And, and not every investor necessarily has that luxury. With with your fund, is there an exit strategy? Will the fund wind down at some time? Or is, it, is the idea to establish cash flow and... Um, so- 
we only, it's a five-year fund. So okay. I structured this to be um, basically a money machine and a quick exit because um, I've spent 10, like I found the assets before I structured the fund to do this very specific thing. So I did the work prior to launching the fund and giving these companies capital. Um, and that's kind of like what the investors get to benefit from. It's my contribution to the fund, right? The investors take the risk with their capital. I took the risk with my time. Um, and so we plan to either fully exit out of these assets within the next five years, or we're going to, um, it's a small fund. So like right now, I think we have a little under 60 investors, individual investors, and that's not a large group to go to and say, hey, this asset can cash flow for the next 20 years. Do you want to put it into an LLC and have that together? Or do you want me to sell it? Or, you know, what do you want to do? Um, sure. And that's, that's the plan for, you know, 2025, because we'll be fully exited by 2026, is start having those conversations. Do you want me to sell this asset? Do you want to hold this asset? Does an individual want to buy the asset for themselves? Mm -hmm. um, and we're planning on launching two other funds by the end of the year. And that could also be a potential exit. So, um, so tell us about those. Sure. So, uh, because my back is oil and gas, I typically get really busy at the end of the year, uh, with investors looking for IDCs or write-offs for their, uh, taxes. So you get a pretty big tax benefit when you invest directly into oil and gas development. Um, it's an almost a hundred percent deduction. So, um, you can really help offset your tax burden when you invest in oil and gas. And this is just because the government doesn't want to pay for it. And they give the investors the opportunity to uh, support the industry and get the tax benefit. Um, so because of that and my relationships with several CPAs, I have a CPA of my board. I have two CPAs who are clients in the fund. Uh, my parents were CPAs. So like I really connect with that group of people. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to launch a, a smaller energy fund that will just be in oil and gas for development um, for tax reasons. So um, there'll still be really good uh, prospects, uh, but it will all be development. There won't be any existing production or anything like that, like we have in our fund now. So the um, idea it, being to take advantage of, you know, you're able to find good projects, good deals, but that's the fund I want if I want to write off 85% of my investment in year one. Right. Go into yeah. that. Okay. Yes. And so uh, we'll do we'll do a smaller fund like that somewhere between probably 15 and $20 million. Okay. Um, that's for the small business owners that need, you know, to put a hundred to $250,000 into an oil and gas deal um, to save themselves, you know, 20 to $40,000 on their taxes. Um, and then we're going to launch a larger oil and gas deal. Um, that's going to be a $500 million energy fund. And that's going to be both renewable and oil and gas. Um, I have about, close to $200 million worth of oil and gas projects that we could fund um, that typically I work with larger investors just to do independently, but I just want to do them now. So, so I want you to have, you basically have a pipeline teed up. And, and so you started this first fund that was, I don't want to say pet projects, but projects that you view, you viewed high risk, but very high reward. Mm -hmm. And you gave, uh, investors, pretty good, um, you know, return fee structure, all that. 
for that mm-hmm. first fund, sort of reward them for, um, you know, investing their money with you on your first fund. And now that that fund is ongoing, gaining traction, um, you're springboarding that into these these other two funds in the oil and gas space. Um, and I think it's amazing. I mean, it's 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 really cool to hear about someone who's you know working on the inside on that institutional side, getting access to uh, what sounds like an amazing deal flow, deal pipeline, bringing that to make it accessible to the retail investor. Um, I think that's a really compelling story. I mean, honestly, that's what I try and do on on the podcast here is tell interesting stories, right? Because if it was all about money, it'd get boring pretty fast. Yeah. Um, that being said, I'm guessing we have some listeners and viewers who are interested in your fund. So mm-hmm. where can they go to learn more about alternative wealth partners? Um, so we have a lot of information on our website, which is just alternativewealthpartners.com. Um, also, if they want to find me on LinkedIn, I am pretty active online as far as um, writing opinions about things that are going on in the world. I've published a couple articles. Um, there's quite a few interviews um, I've done over the couple years that are available. Um, I'm Googleable. So if you Google me, you'll find it. Um, my team is always here. So if you go online to our website and submit a contact uh, sheet, we'll reach out and set up a call um, to either have one-on-one with me or somebody from the team. Um, I try to talk to every single investor that comes into the fund uh, before they invest just because um, it's a two-way street. Like we have to like each other. Um, I have I have fired two investors so far. So uh, (laughs) it's not, um, I don't always say yes. And be on your good behavior folks. Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's important. I mean, I want this to be a long relationship and, um, you know, this is fund one of many and life is too short, Kelly. I'm a hundred percent with you. Right. So if you're not, if you're not on the same page, then, you know, I, it's best of luck to you out in the world, but it's not with us. Uh, so Absolutely. I love that. And for our listeners, if you want links to everything we mentioned in today's episode, you can always visit altsdb.com slash podcast to access the show notes. I'll be sure to link to Alternative Wealth Partners as well as to Kelly's profile on LinkedIn. I'm looking forward to checking out some of those videos. Um, And don't forget to subscribe to the Alternative Investment Podcast on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so you can be sure to receive our new episodes as we release them. Kelly, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I was so excited about talking about everything. Thanks for having me. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 